read Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll stop at chapter 3, verse 12. So I'll give it a second. Open up our Bibles, or you can follow on the screen behind me on the side. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, to whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I were to return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Our friends, why don't you stand and pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures that show us your Son and how to live before him and you. And Father, we pray that uh, today as we look at this passage together, uh, you would help us in this, that you'd be at work in us, that your spirit might fill us so that we might not only hear but obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, what I'd like to do to start today or this evening is uh, by talking about how, how people think about God. You see, I think that thinking about God comes naturally to all human beings. You might not think so, but I think it does. Um, for most people in the world believe in God in one way or another. Uh, most people in the world believe certain things about God. Um, oh, they may not practice what they believe, but they certainly believe things. Um, and I think that even summaries of what people believe, you can even summarise what people believe about God. Uh, and those beliefs might be summarised like this. This is overly simplistic, but nevertheless, it's a start, isn't it? Uh, God exists, God made us, God rewards those who live as he intended them to live, 
Uh, God rewards people who live as God intended by looking after them. And uh, he rewards them, rescues them, protects them, and so on. I think that's fairly simple, but nevertheless, I think many people in the world believe uh, things like that about God. I'm saying that most people think about their relationship with God in the same way as they think about ordinary relationships. That is, um, they think like this. If we support God and his cause, he will do the right thing by us. If we are his friends, he will be a friend to us. I want to give a name to this sort of thinking. We could call it the law of just returns. I give the right thing, God gives me the right thing. Um, and what's more, I think that the Bible actually teaches the, the law of just returns in some ways. Uh, for example, it teaches it in its stories. Uh, uh, just think about uh, the story of Daniel, since that's reasonably well known. Um, Daniel's a man of God, he trusts God, he's God's friend even when it gets difficult for him. And so when things get difficult for Daniel because he's been loyal to God, God does the right thing by Daniel. He rescues him. And the Bible is full of stories like that, isn't it? Just think about them. Uh, and the meaning is clear. God loves those who love him. God rescues those who trust in him and delight in him. God is on the side of those who are his friends. Uh, but as well as these stories... Um, there are many verses that teach the law of just returns. Can you think of some? Here's a, here's a couple. Psalm 37, verses 3 through to 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and safely enjoy safe pasture and, and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will do it. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and your justice and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. That's a good example of the Lord just returns, isn't it? You do right by God, he'll do right by you. Um, now, let's look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. It runs like this. The Lord is good of refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Again, the law of just returns. And that is, uh, and this is the God of just returns, as it were. A God who seeks our trust He's a God who rewards our trust by looking after us. Fairly simple. I think most religious people around the world probably think similarly. Now, you may well wonder why I start this way. Well, as we look at the passage today, it touches on this very matter, I think. Uh, it sort of introduces this matter, and with that in mind, I want you to look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 with me. I want you to look at what God says to his people. First, Malachi tells us that the Lord is wearied by the words of his people. You can see that, Malachi 2.17, first line. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Then he imagines a response in line two. How have we wearied him? They respond back. And their response amounts to a challenge. They challenge the God of justice, you see. Uh, they challenge him by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. Verse 17, third part of the verse. Or they challenge God about his justice by saying, where? Where is the God of justice? Can you hear what God's people are saying about God here? They are saying that he has reversed the law of just returns and is not doing it with his people. It's a fairly tough call. 
He's not going, doing good toward his people. You see, they have come back from exile. They've built the temple. They've restarted the sacrificial system. They've done all the right things in many ways. In other words, they've been good and godly. But God appears to be unimpressed. He's uncaring about their meagre existence back in the land now that they've come back from exile. He's not exercising justice toward them. However, it's possible there's an added element to what they're saying. And that is this. Perhaps they're not just saying, where is the God of justice? Perhaps they're also saying, where is the God of judgment? In other words, where is the God the prophets promised? Where is the God who will judge the enemies of his people? Where is the God who will return to his temple and be in the midst of his people? These are direct charges against God, I think. God seems absent. He's not dealing out justice. He's not come as judge. He's not fulfilled his word, is what I think is going on. Now look at God's response in chapter 3, verse 1. Can you see it there? Examine what he says here in Scripture. In response to the charges, he says these words. See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messengers of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God says, no. Watch this space. Then he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Can you hear that twist there? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, refine them with gold and uh, like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows, the fatherless, and deprive the aliens of justice, and do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. It's tough, isn't it? Do you hear what he's saying? He's listening to their complaints. He said, oh yeah, I I hear you, and uh, here's my response. Let me put it in modern language for you. It goes like this. They say, God, where are you? Where's your justice? You're absent. You don't appear to be caring about anything in relation to us. And God says back to them, oh, oh, so you want justice, do you? Well, don't you worry about justice. I'm going to send it. I will send my messengers of my covenant. Oh, and you want me to come, do you? Oh, well, my messenger will come and prepare my way for me. And then the Lord himself, that is, then I will come and I will deal justice out. But let me warn you, the God of justice is a, per- is a fearful person to stand before. You see, the God of justice is a God who refines and purifies. And refining and purifying means re- refining and purifying the priests. It means judgment against all the sorcerers that are in the land, the adulterers, the perjurers, the people who defraud people of their wages. Refining and purifying means judging the people who oppress the widows and the fatherless. It means judgment against those who deprive aliens of justice. It means judgment against those who don't fear me. Friends, can you hear what God's saying? He's saying, I am holding you back. You don't want 
what you're asking for. For you don't know yourself. Can you see it's a very risky thing to charge God with injustice? Because he is ultimately just. You see, what we want from God is not justice, is it? I can tell you that's not what I want. Well, I do and I don't, if you know what I mean. You see, justice means punishment of the guilty. And we are among the guilty. And the Bible is clear from page three. Humans are sinful. That's why you start the Bible the way it does, to tell you the context. Sinners don't want justice. Now you see, justice will mean punishment for the wicked, and that means us as well. No, sinners don't want justice. What we sinners need, what sinners like me and you need, is mercy. Is mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. Not what we deserve. And with that foundation built, I want you to move to chapter 3, verses 6 through to 12. And uh, it begins with an assertion. The Lord makes a definitive statement. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. And then he goes on and explains what that means. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Judah, are not destroyed since the, ever since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and not kept them. I wonder if I could just paraphrase it for you. Here's, uh, here's what I think is being said. It's my sort of characterization of it, if you like. Listen, you Israelites, you accuse me of not loving you, of not being faithful or loyal to you, of not being just towards you. But let me tell you, I don't change. And because I don't change, I am committed to the relationship I have committed myself to from day one. And that means I haven't destroyed you. And by the way, I should say, you haven't changed much either. So if I haven't changed, you haven't changed. Jacob was your ancestor and you are like him and everyone who followed him. As a nation, you've always been characterised by sin. As a nation, you've always turned away from my decrees and not kept them. But I have not changed. I continue and continue and continue to reach out to you. And I continue to offer you the opportunity to repent and forgiveness. And in verse 7, God gets goes on to make this clear. Can you see it? Verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But do you know what? As usual, the people of God have a response to this. Look at verse 7. They ask God, Oh, and how are we to return? And God responds. He's told them throughout their discussion that they've been robbing him and offering him polluted animals in sacrifice. They've refused to listen to the law and now he tells them how to start. They can start by listening to that law and actually performing it. They can stop robbing him and start bringing in the tithe that they owe and promised. Now let me tell you what this is about. You see, in Numbers 18, God told his people that they were to give their tithes to the Levites. That's the, the tribe responsible for priesthood. So, uh, you see, Levites, unlike every other Jewish tribe, did not receive part of the land. 
as their blessing from God when they entered the land. They didn't receive any land, and so their fellow Israelites supported them by giving a tithe of their produce, 10%, as it were. And the Levites themselves were then to tithe what they received and give this as an offering to the temple. So everyone was into this, okay? That way everyone in Israel tithed. Every Israelite property owner, every Israelite priest. Now in Malachi's days, the Israelites were stingy. They were withholding tithes. They weren't tithing at all. They were effectively robbing God and cheating him. With that background in mind, I want you to look at verse 10. God offers a challenge to his people. And I need to tell you that in the Bible, testing God is not looked upon with favour. You know that, don't you? It's not look, testing God is not something good to be doing. But here God offers the opportunity. He said, test me in this. Uh, he throws out a challenge. He says, bring the whole tithe, this is verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. And he offers them a promise. Look at the second half of verse 10. He says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it. He promises them he'll pour out so many blessings they won't know what to do with them. And then he goes on, verse 11, can you see it? He will prevent pests from devouring their crops. He will stop the vines of their fields from dropping their fruit. In verse 12 he says that the surrounding nations will look on Israel and recognise they are truly the objects of God's great blessing. They'll call Israel blessed, and they'll call her land a delightful land. Friends, in these verses, God is simply calling out for his people to respond appropriately. He hasn't changed, he doesn't change. In their previous history, when his people were in deep distress, they would assert for God and repent and cry out, and when they did, he would answer them. And God's pattern was to hear their cry pour out mercy and grace because do you know what that is God's nature he is the Lord the Lord the gracious and compassionate God slow to our anger and abounding in steadfast love that's his character now you know what I want to do now I want to stop for a moment and do a little bit of sideways reflection um, you see when I was coming to and preach on this passage um, I was forced to make a decision I don't like giving sermons that are too long so I had to make a choice and let me tell you my dilemma my dilemma is that this is one of the very few passages in the Bible that talks about tithing now I need to declare my interest I have no vested interests here because <laughs> you're not my people that is you're not the congregation I regularly teach to, so I can jump in here and I can say some things um, without fear <laughs> of being self-interested. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> so um, I decided I'd talk to you briefly about tithing. Here's my summary. First point is tithing is a principle in the Old Testament. Everyone was to tithe. The people were to tithe the fruit of the land God had given them. The, uh, the tithe would be for the priestly tribe, the Levites. Levites had no land, you see, in Israel. So because they had no land, they needed the people to look after them. So they received support from other tribes of Israel. But they were not exempt. 
from tithing, Numbers 18 says they were to tithe as well. So, you know, they received a tithe and they passed on a tithe, as it were. That's everyone was to tithe. Point two is, there are no New Testament equivalents to the Levites. I want you to hear that very firmly. No New Testament equivalents to the Levites. We don't have priests. But we do have two categories of people that we need to think about in relation to money. The first category of people are those who have the gifts of leadership and teaching of God's people. And if they are to do the job well, they may need to stop doing normal work in order to pastor and teach God's people. Does that make sense? We may need to therefore set them aside for ministry of the word of God and prayer. So, first, we should do what Paul suggests in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. In my view, the one who has taught the word should share all good things with the one who teaches. That's a good principle, isn't it? Second, we have brothers and sisters who are poor either financially or in terms of the gospel, and we should help them as well. And Paul gives some advice about these people. I want you to have a look at Galatians chapter 6. Flip in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, says Paul, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You see, we have a commitment. That's what Paul is saying. He said, we've received great mercy and we have to care for the people of God that are less privileged than us. That brings me to my next point. My third point is that tithing is not a principle in the New Testament. I cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where it says to tithe. Okay? Nowhere is tithing said to be part of a Christian lifestyle in the New Testament. However, it may provide us with a helpful guideline. I would think that 10% is a helpful place to start if you're Christian. This is not from the Word of God. This is from Andrew, just someone trying to make sense of things. 10% seems to be a good place to start. Having said that, the New Testament does give a principle that should guide our giving. What is it? One word. Guess. The word is? Grace. Does that make sense? We are people who have received grace, aren't we? If you're a Christian here today, you have received the most incredibly gracious gift that a person could receive. Life with God for eternity. So, the Apostle Paul says, we have received grace. He says, therefore, that we should give grace. Here is a memory verse for this. He talks about the Corinthians and about financial giving and he says uh, two things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Write it down so you can have a good look at it later on. He tells the Corinthians that they should excel in the act of gracious giving. He says this, for you know. Friends, if there's a memory verse from this couple of days, here's a good one. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 
Isn't that a beautiful verse? And you can see I've memorized it, so why don't you do it as well? Um, friends, Jesus laid down his life for us. He was gracious beyond measure. With whatever money God has given us, we should be gracious likewise. So there are four points on tithing. Tithing is a principle in the Old Testament. We may not have Levites anymore, but we do have Christian gospel workers. Tithing is not a principle in the New Testament, but there is a greater principle, grace. So there's my summary of this topic. Since it's in the text, I thought we should address it tonight, and I have no vested interest. So um, my general expectation of myself is that since we have a better covenant enacted on better promises and infused with grace, <laughs> then we should be even more gracious and generous than our Old Testament predecessors. A tithe of 10% would be a good start. And I'm not making a law here. I'm not suggesting this is law. Generosity, though, is the mark of Christian grace, isn't it? Generosity is what God does and has done with us. Generosity is what Christians who are like their Saviour do. So there's my bit about tithing. I have no vested interest here today. Okay? So... But I need to say it because it comes up in the passage, so let's address it. Now, with that little aside on tithing, let's wrap up what we've learned from Malachi here today, or just now. And I want to talk about something that I call practical atheism. Okay? So let me tell you about practical atheism. Atheism is, you all know what it is, when you don't believe in God. Practical atheism is when you say that you believe in God, but act as though you don't. <laughs> Or think as though you don't. In other words, you place religion and God as a secondary thing in your life. And you place other interests as being primary. That's practical atheism, I think. Well, we've learned from Malachi that the people of the day where he prophesied were practical atheists. Oh, they were not actually atheists, of course. Um, they believed in God. They built temples. They offered sacrifices. According to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, they even went to God's altar. So they even, you know, people who got emotionally engaged. However, we can see from their words and their actions that they really were practical atheists. If they really believed in God, what would they do? They'd listen to his law, wouldn't they? And if they listened to his law, they'd hear that he requires certain animals to be sacrificed and others not sacrificed. And they would hear that he wanted certain tithes to be brought. And, that, and they would read about the fact that the priests were meant to be holy in lifestyle and leadership. But they didn't do this. Instead, they spent their time working out how they could make more money rather than give more money. That's, the, that's what's going on in this book. They spent their time working out how they could divorce their wives rather than work out their marriages. You can look at that as well. They took foreign wives who only led them away from the real God and towards idols. And do you know what? God has a word for such people. He has warned Malachi in the words of Jesus. He, sorry, he has warned in Malachi in the words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament. Do you know what God says? There's a day that is coming. And it will be a day when he himself comes. 
God is coming to this earth. And when he does, all that is not genuine will be exposed by his holiness. And practical atheists will be exposed as what they really are, effectively atheists. You can tell a person's character by what they do, can't you? People who don't really serve God and people who will be recipients of God's judgment. Oh, friends, let me tell you that Malachi is a very relevant book for Christians. Very, very relevant. You see, there is much in common between us and ancient Israel. There's even more in our passage today. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it. Malachi promises that God will send someone. Do you know, can you see who he's going to send? My messenger. Then he talks about him as the Lord you are seeking. Then he talks about him as the messenger of the covenant. Now it's a bit difficult working out who all those people are. Christians have generally seen the first messenger being the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. The Lord you are seeking and the messenger of the covenant are probably references to God himself. That's number two. So what we are talking about is a messenger who announces the day of the Lord is coming. In other words, a messenger who announces that God himself is coming to visit his world. Now, we Christians rightly think of Malachi's prophecy as ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament, don't we? We rightly think the messenger preparing the way of the Lord is ultimately fulfilled in... John the Baptist. Okay? That's a natural reading, isn't it? Um, but friends, you know what? Jesus is coming twice. The first time he came was to bear sin. The sins of the world. He came to forge a way for us to be forgiven. But I want to tell you something. He is coming again. He is coming again. And he's coming to judge the world. And he's coming to judge his people. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 30. Write it down. Look it up later. Hebrews 10 30 says this. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. Did you notice that last bit? And the Lord will judge his people. Did you hear it? And James chapter 5 verse 9, write that one down as well, says this. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Listen and heed these words. God is going to judge his people. Let me urge you, therefore, in the face of the coming of God, to not be like the people of Malachi's day. Don't be practical like Please hear it. Do not be practical atheists. A practical atheist is someone who says they believe in God, who associates with God's people, who goes to church, follows the lead of other Christians, and might even tithe and do good works. However, underneath it all, the focus of their lives, their loves, their attention is elsewhere other than God. And perhaps you could... Perhaps there are some people here who might put themselves in that, ba in that bag, as it were. God matters, but only as a secondary sense. Only in a secondary sense. What matters is 
in a primary sense, is something other than God. It might be a wife, it might be a husband, or a family, or a job, or a career, or the fruit of a career, such as money, or wealth, or fame, or a place in the praise of people. They don't, though, have their priority as a priority of their spiritual growth. Nor do they have their focus on the world coming to know Jesus. Ministry, mission, and the support of such things in prayer and money will be secondary for them. Other things will be primary. Friends, families, and careers are not wicked. They are not wicked. They're a creation of God. They're a good thing. But when they move up the ladder so that they replace God, they have become idolatrous. A good thing, and we humans are very good at it, a good and godly thing becomes idolatrous. We shove God to the side. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ promises that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And when he does, it will be to save those who have put him first, put him at the, at the headstone of their lives. But for others, the day will be a day of judgment. I, I'm putting it to you hard today. A day that exposes all that is not genuine. And on, and on that day, when the Lord comes, let me tell you, practical atheists will be exposed as what they really are. Atheists. People who don't really know God, who don't really serve God. People who will be recipients of God's judgment. However, friends, I cannot end on that note. It's tough, isn't it? But I've been driven to it, I think, by the text. I can't finish there. I want to end now how our passage ends. So if you're looking for some relief, I think there's some here. <laughs> okay. Did you see it? Look at, look at the verses in the very next passage. For our passage promises something wonderful beyond belief in verses 10 and following. Have a look. It tells us that God the Lord does not change. He is who? Who is God the Lord? Remember his great revelation of himself in the book of Exodus. He is the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you want to take a memory verse home, that's the one. He loves us. He loves welcoming sinners. <laughs> it fills his heart with joy. He runs out, as it were, to meet those who run to him. He loves us confessing sin and acknowledging our need of him. And when we come to him and do all of this and give our whole being do you know what he promises? He says, I will open the floodgates of heaven myself. I will pour out upon you all the riches I have to give in blessing. And we know, don't we, that he has a Christ. He promises it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Christ, we who are poor in spirit will what? Inherit the earth. 
we who mourn because of sin, will be comforted. We, the meek, will inherit the earth. We who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled with it. We who are pure in heart will see God and all the blessings of heaven will be ours. And we will be the most blessed people of all people who have ever lived in the earth. Son, Jesus Christ, for eternity. How blessed will we be and how rich will our experience be. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, these things are yours in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's enormous, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you know us as sinful people. But in Christ you know us as righteous, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that makes us, Father, we thank you, the most blessed of all people in this creation. And we know that this will go on forever. That we will be with you and your Son, Jesus Christ, for eternity. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and what you've done. We confess our sins again to you. But mostly, Father, we remember your great mercy and kindness and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.